And go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And as you're doing that, let me pray for our time in God's Word together. Father, we, we pray that we would mean what we sang this morning, that, that we would recognize our need for you, Lord, that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were, Lord, we were in bondage, Lord, to the ruler of this world, and Lord, we, we needed you, Lord, we needed you to send the Savior, the Messiah, the promised King of King and great high priest, Lord, to, to deliver us out of, of, of bondage, Lord, into the kingdom of your Son. And Father, we continue to need you. Father, we recognize that we don't have to pray to ask you to be here, that you promised that you would never leave us or forsake us, but we do pray because we need you to open our eyes that we may see you, that we would, that we would see you, that you would teach us from your words, that, that you would incline our hearts to you, that you would, may open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law. Lord, that you would teach us your ways, that we may know you and walk in your truth. We pray that you would do these amazing things this morning as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard of the Brooklyn Messiah? Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson lived in New York in the late 20th century, where he became a leader or rebbe of the Chabad Lubavitch movement of Judaism. Schneerson made such an impact on Chabad Judaism as a leader and religious teacher that many started to believe that Schneerson might be the long-expected Messiah. Now, such belief, of course, was emboldened by Schneerson's subtle hints and encouragements to that fact. Now, after Schneerson's stroke in 1992 that left him partially paralyzed, there was an even more widespread call for him to declare that, yes, he was the Messiah. In fact, at one occasion, over 3,000 of his followers came out to Brooklyn to, to hopefully anoint him as such. They were chanting out, long live our master, our teacher, and rabbi, King Messiah forever and ever. However, Schneerson died on June 12, 1994. Now, after his death, some of his followers, they held out hope. Maybe he could still be the Messiah. Maybe, maybe even the Bible might teach that the Messiah might rise from the dead, which did not make them popular with other sects of Judaism. One of his followers even wrote, quote, Our long-awaited Messiah and Redeemer arrived. Tragically, he died before completing the redemptive process. But we hope he will soon be resurrected and continue in his messianic task. I actually remember living in Israel several years after these events, and there were, there were still storefronts that, of his followers that put pictures of him that they were kind of still holding out hope, maybe, maybe, somehow. But this year, the 25th anniversary of his death, and there's still no resurrection, and his followers have all moved on and moved away from any hope that he could have been such a Messiah. But the question they were asking is the right one is an important one. It's a question neglected by so many of their Jewish brethren. That question of, who is the Messiah? That's the question Jesus asked in his day of the Jewish leadership in Matthew 22. He asked the Jewish leadership, what do you think about the Christ? That word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew title Messiah. Whose son is he, he asked them. Now, they thought the answer was an easy one. They thought they knew this. They'd studied the Old Testament. It's clear. They said, the son of David. And at this point, 
Jesus shows them that they didn't understand the Old Testament quite as well as they thought they did. And, and, and he did so by quoting the psalm that we're going to study this morning, Psalm 110. You see, for Jesus, this psalm gave a key important indicator about who the Messiah is and that that Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. In fact, the rest of the New Testament follows, follows Jesus in this and frequently quoted this psalm about the Messiah. In fact, this is the most frequently quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. 27 times this psalm is either quoted or alluded to. Greg and I had discussions this week about what is the proper way to exegete this passage? What's the proper way to interpret this passage? And I'll tell you what, I don't think there's any, I don't think you can do it better than Jesus. If you found a way better than Jesus, we can talk afterwards. But, but Jesus seems to know what he's talking about here. And the way that Jesus understood this passage, the way that the rest of the New Testament understood this passage was that this passage was about the promise of the Messiah to come, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This psalm answers that question, what would the Old Testament Messiah look like when he comes? And in fact, since we're going to be dividing and focusing on different parts, I just want to read this together so we get a feel for the whole psalm. It says, a psalm of David, the Lord, or Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He shall shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You see, in this psalm, the Lord, or Yahweh, makes two declarations. God speaks about who this Messiah is in two declarations. One, in verse 1, we see that this, there's this promise of the Messiah is the King of Kings. And then in verse 4, we see again Yahweh making this declaration of the promise of the Messiah is this great high priest. And we see from the New Testament that both are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as in VBS this week, we studied how Jesus, through history, from eternity past to, to his return in eternity future, we're going to look at this picture in, in the past, in the Old Testament, of this picture of Jesus who, who was going to come and be the Messiah, the Savior. We're going to focus on these two pictures, their connections in the rest of the psalm and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I'm going to cover the, this, this promise of the, the, as Jesus is the king of kings. And after I take that declaration, Pastor Greg's going to come up and he's going to look at verse 4 and that promise of, of Jesus as the great high priest. But let's focus first on verse 1, this promise of Jesus as the king of kings. Let's, let's look what it says first about the identity of the king. Now, we want to jump right into verse 1 and, and what it says, but sometimes you can neglect the prescript, right? You can neglect the title there. Notice how it starts. It says, a psalm of what? David. All right, we're awake. That's good. Now, unlike the titles you might have in your English versions, you might have a bold title uh, like the ESV has, sit at my right hand, or if you have an NASB translation, it says, the Lord gives dominion to the king. Th those bold titles are not Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. Those are not original to the manuscript. Those are given by your translators to kind of sum up what's going to happen in each chapter. 
But the real title of this, you could say, is the Psalm of David. That was originally in the text. That is an important part of this psalm. And I say it's important because some would say, nah, it's not written by David. A psalm of who? David, right? But they want to deny this. They want to explain that away. No, it can't be David. I love snarky preachers, even though I'm not always one. And Charles Spurgeon was one of the best. Charles Spurgeon talked about those who would try to deny that Psalm 110 was written by David. And Spurgeon writes, How blind are some modern wise men, even amid the present blaze of light, as compared to this poet prophet of some darker dispensation. They think, oh, they don't, people in the past, they don't know, I know better. Well, David knew who he was, and he wrote this psalm, right? In fact, if Jesus in Matthew 22 says that D David wrote this psalm, and Peter follows suit and says in Acts 2 that David wrote this psalm, I'm going with Jesus, right? I'm going with Jesus and Peter that David wrote this psalm. And now you may ask, who cares? What's the big deal? Why does it matter who wrote this psalm? It's because of the implications, how we interpret the rest of this. Because look at the rest of there in verse 1. The Lord, or Yahweh, says to my Lord. Let's stop there. There's two different lords here. Do you guys see that in the text? There, there's two different spellings of Lord. The first is in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That, that, that in our English Bible is signifying the word Yahweh the covenantal name of the God of Israel. So what this verse is saying is, Yahweh says to my Lord. Okay, well, if Yahweh is the first Lord, well, who is the second Lord that Yahweh is talking to? Now, this is where the fact that David wrote this psalm becomes so important. Because if David is calling someone my Lord, what does that mean? That means that person must be greater than David. Now, who could be greater than David? Now, it's certainly not anyone living in Israel during David's time. David was the king. He was the highest ruler in the land. And it couldn't just be any of his descendants. Because in such ancient cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, the patriarch and the ancestors would always have greater honor than future offspring. This is the, what Jesus brought to the, the, the Jewish leadership in Matthew 22, saying, who is he talking about here? Who is David's Lord that is greater than him, that's greater than the king of Israel, that's greater than the man after God's own heart, that's greater than the man that God had promised to be the head of a dynasty in 2 Samuel 7? Who could this be? We have to keep reading. So it says, Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, if you're reading through the Bible and you're reading through the Old Testament and you're thinking in, in Old Testament language, there is a huge problem here. Because no one sits next to God. No one should sit next to God. To sit next to God on the heavenly throne of the universe in Jewish theology is to claim equality with God, is to claim an identity with the God of Israel. In other words, to sit next to God means to be equal with God. Right? In the Old Testament, in Jewish theology, to sit next to God is to claim to be equal with God. So this Messiah King would have to be the incarnation of God himself. Now, don't misunderstand me here. David was a devout monotheist. He held to the Old Testament Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yet within his monotheism, 
there is an understanding of both Yahweh and his Lord sharing the throne of God, sharing the worship of God that belongs only to the one God. Two different names, two different persons being addressed, and yet one God. David never heard of words like trinity or hypostatic union, and some of you may not have either. That's okay. But David understood that there is one God and that both Yahweh and his Lord, his coming king, are both God. And yet there's one God. You see, there are some that would claim that when people, when the New Testament talks about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, that they would say that conflicts with Judaism. You can't be a Jew and believe that Jesus is God. That conflicts with the Jewish Shema. That conflicts with Old Testament monotheism. Obviously, it wasn't a problem for David, right? David speaks of his Lord, one greater than himself, as sitting at Yahweh's right hand, sharing the honor and worship as God. This coming Messiah would be himself be God. And by the way, just a side note, the more scholarly research that we know about Second Temple Judaism, which is first century Judaism, we understand that, 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 that Jews had to understand about monotheism as well. They said, yes, there is one God, but, but the nature of that one God can be complex. There is a diverse picture of that. They, they didn't talk about words like Trinity and those sort of things, I understand. But they, when Jesus and the apostles spoke about Jesus as God, that Jesus would have the attributes of God and the title of God and the honor and worship of God, this was not breaking from Judaism. This was not breaking from the Old Testament. This was a completion of what the Old Testament pictured. This was a completion of what David promised here about the coming Messiah King. You see, it, it, we see here, who is this king? What's his identity? He was going to be the sovereign Lord of the universe taking on flesh. This is part of what it means when we call ourselves Christians. You ever think about that? What does it mean? We're Christians. We're a Christian church. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Hey, Christians, yay. Well, what does that mean, Christian, right? That the name Christian was first given to followers of Jesus Christ by unbelievers in Antioch, unbelievers who are watching these followers of Christ, and they call them Christians. Well, why that name? Well, historically, it's probably some form of ridicule of these followers of Christ by people in Antioch. But why Christians? Why do they call them Christians? Because all these Christians ever talked about was the Christ or the Christ, right? That's all they would ever talk about. Jesus was their Christ, which is the same word as Messiah, which is the picture of the king. Jesus was their king. If they, all they knew about these Christians was they were followers of King Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. To, to, to believe in and trust Jesus is to follow him as king, right? That's what it means, that we are those who confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's king. And believe in our hearts that God raised from the dead. That's where our salvation, that, that, is, our, that is where we receive salvation, right? And in fact, if you're visiting with us today, and, and, and you have not trusted in, this, in, in Jesus Christ, you don't know who this Jesus Christ is, we want to say welcome. You are welcome here. We are glad that you are here and joining us this morning. But we want you to understand that this is what a Christian is. We as Christians are followers of King Jesus. You see, the God who created us, he created all of us. He created the world. He created us. But we rebelled against him. We lived as if we were going to live as God's. 
and not the one who created us. That, that rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And even though that we had rebelled against God, and, and because our parents rebelled against God, this, this world was, became fallen. And, and, and so we had this fallen condi- condition of disaster and disease and disunity. But the same God who created us, the same God who loves us, promised to send the Savior to fix what is broken, to, to bring this redemption and salvation into the world. He, he promised the Savior who is this King of Kings that came, Jesus Christ. And so God loved us and sent his son. And, and, and Jesus came to live a perfect life because we never could. We rebel against God. And then he died on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sin. In the place of the punishment we deserve, he died for us. And he rose again in victory to, to prove that he had paid for our sin and to offer us forgiveness for our sin and, and, and life eternal now and forever in heaven. And, and this gift is, is, is a free gift available to you. We, we want, we're glad you're here so you could hear about this free gift. That the Bible promises that, as we just said, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you're willing to follow this King Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is who he's declared to be, then you shall be saved. Then he gives you, offers you this gift of forgiveness, this gift of eternal life. If you're here and you want to know more about this Jesus, if you want to know more about what, what this free gift of salvation is today, please don't leave without talking to the person who brought you, without talking to any member of our church or First Baptist Church. And, and, and I'll be at the back. I'm sure Greg will join me. And we would love to tell you more about this Jesus. But this psalm goes on, though. It doesn't just talk about the identity of King Jesus. It also talks about his, his rule, the rule of King Jesus. Now, we're, we're short on time here, so... We're going to go a little faster through the rest of this psalm. And you're like, can he go faster? Yes, I can. (laughs) There's two pictures throughout the rest of this psalm about how the Messiah would rule. And we're going to notice that there is a promised not yet rule and an already present rule. It's already and not yet. Let's read the rest of verse 1. It says, sit at my hand, right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So his enemies are going to be his footstool. In the ancient world, it means he's going to completely defeat all of his enemies. It's absolute rule over his enemies. And what would that rule look like? Well, we we have to go down all the way to verse 5 until we see that rule. Verses 5 through 7 shows about that absolute rule of the coming king, this final judgment of the victorious warrior over his enemies. But why not tell verse 5? Notice back in verse, verse 1, there's an important preposition there. Until. You guys see that until? There's going to be this absolute rule, but it's until, there's going to be a time until that time. See, there's an already rule when Jesus is ruling, but there's a not yet fulfillment when he's returned to to, to complete that rule. It's almost like the Old Testament is picturing this dual fulfillment of the Messiah, almost a dual coming of the Messiah. There's an already Messiah rule and a not yet until rule that, that will be consummated. And that's exactly what we see with Jesus, right? There will be a day when Jesus will return. Revelation 19 talks about that, that the time of grace is over. And those who are left have, 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 have turned against him and will not bow the knee to worship him as King Jesus. And he will bring righteous judgment on all his enemies. But there's also an until day, that day. There's a time of grace when Jesus is working and ruling through his kingdom work because of his death and resurrection. And so what does that day look like? What does that until day, until he returned look like? Well, look finally at verse 2 and 3. It says, Yahweh sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is the already rule. This is the in-between, the Messiah's coming, and then his until rule as he returns. He has the kingdom work. He is working through his kingdom with the Lord's mighty scepter. But notice how he's ruling now. It says he rules in the midst of his enemies. This is a strange phrase. You would never see this in ancient Near Eastern contexts. Context, contexts? What am I talking about? Contexts. Ancient kings never rule in the midst of their enemies. They make boundaries protecting themselves and their people from the enemies, or they extend their boundaries by overpowering their enemies, but they never rule in the midst of their enemies. That language is foreign to this context. But this king, this king's already until rule must be a type of spiritual rule where his kingdom would be accomplished in ways that are invisible to the hostile powers of of this world. He's working in the midst of this world. And look at the troops of this king that brings about this kingdom rule. They're described as people of the king. These are royal troops, but they're not described in military terms. You guys see that? There's no military terms. They're described as being clothed in holy garments. Who in the Old Testament wore holy garments? The priests. So these troops, this army of the Messiah is an army of priests an army of priests who bring the message of the kingdom about the message of the king, right? Priests of the Old Testament taught about the teaching of Yahweh. These are priests who would talk about the message of the king. And because of their new life of grace, that new dew of their youth, they willingly offer themselves to service of the king. Who's being pictured here? What's this picture of those who would bring about the Messiah king's rule? It's the church, right? We are the ones, because of the grace King Jesus gave us, we willingly offer ourselves to follow King Jesus and bring his kingdom. We are the royal priests who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the way that Christ expands his kingdom in the midst of his enemies until he returns. We're not called to Christianize society. We're not called to establish a political utopia. But we are called through the work of the gospel to be his messengers, his ambassadors of the gospel, to display and proclaim his work as his church. You see, this is a psalm that is picturing what's going to happen through Jesus, and it's meant for us as well. That that we would not make the same mistake as the followers of Rabbi Schneerson. They missed it. They were asking the right question, but they didn't find the right answers in the scripture. And if we're not careful, we can miss it too. We miss it by failing to see Jesus as he is today, as the promised Messiah, as the promised king. You see, sometimes we think of Jesus as that cute little baby in the manger, or sometimes we think of Jesus as up there hanging on the cross. But you know what? He's not in the manger anymore. And he's not on the cross anymore, right? that Jesus has risen victoriously from the dead and has ascended into heaven, where he is sitting exalted in honor and glory at the Father's right hand. We need to think about that Jesus, that he is our king, an exalted king. And if we would do so, if we would think about Jesus as he is today, how would that change our worship? How could we worship him better? with our hearts and lips and lives because he is the king of kings and worthy of all of our worship. 
If we would see Jesus as he is today, how would that change our service? Us as his willing servants. Because we are the recipients of his grace. And he's not just any king of kings. He's our king of kings. Because if Jesus is the tr truly the king of kings, and he is, and if Jesus is truly our king of kings and as Christians, that's what it means to be a Christian. He is. Then such a king is to be honored and confessed and obeyed and worshiped. So let us behold Christ as he is today. Let me pray for us, and then Greg's going to come up and finish this psalm for us. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see your exalted son, O oh Father, that, that we may worship you Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and that we would serve you as you rightly deserve. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Craig. If you turn with me now down to verse 4, um, one of the, uh, the hardest things for a preacher to do is to listen to preaching right before he has to get up and preach, uh, but not when it's preaching like that. Thank you, brother, for pointing us to Christ and his reign as king. So my task now is to finish uh, the rest of this psalm, and Lord willing, we will get through verse 4. And it uh, seems to be a theme for today with Sunday school. We didn't get through everything, but the Lord willing, we will get through verse 4. And uh, because this is God's word uh, that he has spoken, he has handed down to us, if you would please stand in order to honor the reading of the words of our God. As I begin in verse 4. And I'll finish down through the end of this chapter. God's word says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Father, may you help us to respond to what, Christ, uh, what, what uh, Craig just pointed us to about your son, Jesus Christ. That he is Lord, that he is king, and that he is worthy of our allegiance. Now, Father, may you continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit in order to see how we can have a right relationship with you, how Christ is our great high priest who has made a way for us who are sinners to know you, the one holy God. Father, I ask that you would be glorified now through the preaching of your word so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you what uh, the most, one of the most important Old Testament passages for the New Testament was, what might be your answer? If I were to ask you what was one of the most important Old Testament passages for the New Testament and for the early church, how might you answer that question? Well, maybe somebody would say Isaiah 53, maybe somebody would say Genesis 1. Well, the fact that uh, I'm asking that question as we are preaching from Psalm 110 today, well, maybe that might be a clue. And Craig kind of played my hand already as he talked about how many times this passage is quoted in the New Testament. 
Uh, What we have before us in Psalm 110 is the most quoted, as Craig said, Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. This psalm is one of the most important passages for the early church, not just in the New Testament, but even the years after the New Testament was completed. This psalm has been used to show how Jesus was the Messiah, how Jesus was the coming Savior. Uh, One early church preacher in the 300 and 400s, John Chrysostom, used this psalm to combat false claims made about Jesus from the Jews and from a heretical sect called the Arians, who believed that Jesus was not eternal, but was created. So this passage before us is important for the history of understanding who Christ is. We've seen already in the first pronouncement in verse 1 that David is speaking about a a coming king. a, A king who would be greater than he is. A king that David calls his Lord. So we see the coming king, the coming Messiah would be king. But as we look at verse 4, we have a second pronouncement, a second statement made. And it begins, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So this second pronouncement begins with this declaration that what is about to be said, God is not going to change his mind about. So what is that pronouncement? He says, you are a priest forever. You are a priest forever. Wait a minute. A king who is a priest. A king who is a priest. That that can't happen. Uh, In fact, if you are familiar with, with some of the stories in the Old Testament, there were two kings who tried to be priests in the Old Testament, and well, that didn't work out so well for them. In 1 Samuel 13, King Saul defeats his enemies. He was told to wait for Samuel to come and so that Samuel could, could perform these sacrifices. Well, King Saul doesn't wait. In fact, he takes matters into his own hands. And he performs the duty of a priest. And he offers a sacrifice on his own. And what does God do to Saul? He rejects Saul as king. Why? Because Saul was doing something that only priests were allowed to do. Numbers 18 verse 7 said that only priests were allowed to sacrifice. And that any outsider who comes near, even near to sacrifice, shall be put to death. You wouldn't think of it that God rejecting Saul was actually a sign of mercy upon him. But Saul directly disobeys God's command and God rips the kingdom out of Saul's hands. Well, there's another king who tried to perform priestly duties. His name is Uzziah. You could read about him in 2 Chronicles 26. He was actually a descendant of David. So happening after David wrote this psalm, well, maybe he is the one that the psalm was about. Well, he uh, is a great king. God greatly blessed him. However, in 2 Chronicles 26, starting in verse 16, you see that he becomes filled up with pride. And what is he trying to do? He tries to go into the temple and burn incense. In other words, he tries to do the duties of a priest. And what does God do? God strikes him right then and there with leprosy. Well, again, why? Was the punishment so 
severe? Well, because he was a king who was trying to perform priestly duties, which were not reserved for the king. He was directly disobeying the word of God. Which makes this statement here in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, which makes this statement all the more fascinating. David is saying that someone is coming one day who will be both king and priest. How? If Saul and Uzziah were punished for trying to perform the duties of a priest, well then how? Well, according to the law of Moses, a king could not be priest. And friends, King David certainly understood this. He saw how God had destroyed Saul's reign. So how could this happen? Now, here's what's so interesting about this psalm. What's so interesting about this passage is that in verse 1, you have a statement made about the king. And then if you look at verses 2 and 3, as Craig pointed out for us, there's sort of a commentary, an explanation of the king's rule, of the king's role. Well, here in verse 4, we have the statement made about a priest. So what would you then expect in the following verses? You would expect that there would be a commentary, an explanation on the role of the priest. But in reality, what is it? It's a commentary, again, on the role of the king, a description of what the king would do. So what is going on here? What in the world is David thinking? What in the world is David writing? Well, some believe that David is just writing down whatever comes to mind in the moment. He really has absolutely no idea what he is writing. He is just writing what comes to mind. Well, that's a possibility, But it's also possible that David might be meditating on the life of another priest king from Genesis chapter 14. As king, David would have to write his own copy. He would have his own copy of God's law, and he was called to meditate on it. Right, we have the, the wonderful Psalm 119, the call to meditate on God's word. It, it, it's possible David was meditating on how there once was a priest king who ruled, likely in Jerusalem. And so David, when he became king, what did he do? Well, he began as king in Hebron. He ruled there for a number of years, and then he captured Jerusalem. Well, now in Jerusalem, there is a king and a priest in the same town. But one day, there used to be a priest king. And you know who is mentioned? You know who that is? It's mentioned here in verse 4. It is Melchizedek. Now, if this was VBS, I'd ask you to say his name ten times fast, but I will not ask you to do that now. And so what God is doing here is God shows David how one day there would come another one who would be both king and priest, whose reign wouldn't be just for a couple decades, but whose reign would be eternal. Now, I don't know if you woke up this morning and you were fired up about finding out about Melchizedek. But let me tell you, you absolutely should have woken up this morning fired up about Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek is one of the most important figures in the entire Bible. 
especially in the Old Testament, for understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. D.A. Carson said, Melchizedek is both king, because he is both king and priest, the figure of Melchizedek turns out to be one of the most instructive figures in the entire Bible for helping us put our Bibles together. He helps us see clearly who Jesus is. Now that's interesting because there's only two places in the entire Old Testament that Melchizedek is even mentioned. The first one is in Genesis chapter 14. Abram rescues Lot uh, from, from being captured. He goes and he delivers him. He, he saves him from his enemies. And then this interesting figure shows up and blesses Abraham. In Genesis 14, that's the story of Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness. He is also described as the king of Salem. The, the word for Salem is shalom, also peace. This Salem, many people believe to be the, the Jerusalem. So they likely, so likely he is king of Jerusalem. And then Abraham also goes on in Genesis 14 to give a tithe to Melchizedek. Well, then in one other verse in the entire Old Testament is Melchizedek even mentioned. And it's this one right here. But the New Testament, especially the writer of Hebrews, sees Melchizedek as one of the most important figures for explaining who Jesus is, for explaining how Jesus can be both king and priest. Friend, if you have a, if you have a, a friend who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, maybe, maybe they are Jewish, I, I would ask you to ask them what they think about Melchizedek. Again, John Chrysostom says, you see in Melchizedek what that priest had in shadow was realized in the reality in the case of Jesus Christ. One was shadow, the other reality. In other words, what he's saying is that, that Melchizedek is a shadow of the full reality of who Jesus would be as priest and king. The, the fancy theological word for that is typology or type. Meaning that Melchizedek reveals in the Old Testament a picture of who Jesus is. So we could say that in Melchizedek, we are given a glimpse in the Old Testament of the work that Christ was to do as king and priest. So you see, friends, Jesus could be from the line of David and at the same time also be priest. Because he was not from the line of Levi, but from Melchizedek. This means that the priestly role of Jesus is actually greater than the priestly role of all of the Levitical priests that we see in the Mosaic Covenant. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, Melchizedek was actually greater than Levi. If you were to turn with me, keep your hand here in Psalm 110, but if you were to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6... Hebrews chapter 6 and 7, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is just uh, uh, talking a lot, explaining a lot about who Jesus is. And who does he use? He uses Melchizedek to explain how Jesus is not breaking the law as priest and king. Why? Because he comes from a greater priesthood than Levi. So uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 19. Hebrews 6 verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. See what he's saying there? He's saying that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. In the case, verse 8, in the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives ties, paid ties through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So there, the writer of Hebrews is explaining how Jesus actually brought about a greater covenant than the covenant in the Old Testament. Because Jesus' priestly reign is eternal. Not even death could keep Christ's reign from continuing because Jesus rose from the grave. If Jesus, friends, if Jesus were only king, then yes, we would owe him our lives. We would owe him our allegiance. But he would not be able to save you from your sins and bring you to God. Now, if Jesus were only a priest, yes, he might be able to bring us into the presence of God. But he would have no claim on your life. Friends, in the rest of this psalm, Psalm 110, uh, there is this promise of a priestly warrior king who's going to be bringing judgment on God's enemies. We see that in verses 5 and 6. And friend, let me tell you this. Every single person who has ever been born into this world is an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God, and I am an enemy of God. We are all enemies of God because of our sin. So this king, this priestly warrior king is coming to bring judgment. But who will spare us? Who will spare us of this judgment that is going to come? This king will. Why? How? Because he's not only king, he is also priest. But wait a second, how does that help us? Well, what does the priest do? Well, the priest intercedes for us. Jesus, now being exalted at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for his 
people. He brings, the priest brings the people of God into the presence of God. And how did Jesus do this? He did this by laying down his life, by giving his life on the cross. Friends, Jesus is the only priest who ever lived who was without sin. Thus, he didn't need to have another priest go before God on his behalf. Why? Because Jesus was without sin. And it is only through his perfect life that he could approach God as great high priest. Yet he laid down his life, his perfect life, so that imperfect, sinful people like you and me could have eternal life and we can have access to God. Christian, believer, you who are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we do not come to God as Old Testament believers do. We do not go to God to a mountain that we cannot touch. We do not go to a temple that we cannot enter. No, we get access to God through Jesus Christ because he laid down his life for us. You see, friends, years after David wrote this psalm, hundreds of years after David wrote this psalm, Jesus Christ in Matthew 22 would quote this psalm. There were those who were questioning the authority of Jesus. They were questioning who he was. And Jesus asked a question to those who were opposing him. He said, whose son is the Christ. And they didn't answer that question. He said, whose son is the Christ? They didn't answer him. So friend, I ask you, whose son is the Christ? Friends, in other words, who is Jesus? Friend, don't walk away from here today without an answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Don't leave this building today without answering that question. Who is Jesus? Don't take another bite of food today or another breath of air without answering that question. Who is Jesus? He is king, and as king, you owe him your life. You owe him your allegiance. Who is Jesus? He is priest, and as priest, he came to make the only way for you to know your creator. Friends, I hope that you see in this psalm the glorious truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. About how he is both king and priest. So what does this psalm teach us? What does this psalm teach us about Jesus? In the words of one pastor who put it so eloquently, and please excuse my improper English, there ain't nobody like Jesus. Abraham ain't like Jesus. David ain't like Jesus. Elijah ain't like Jesus. Jeremiah ain't like Jesus. Jesus walked on water. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He released the captive. He died in your place. And the grave could not contain him. Ain't nobody like 
Jesus. Jesus didn't get voted in. He ain't getting voted out. He is priesthood and kingdom are forever. It doesn't matter who the governor is. It doesn't matter who Congress is. It doesn't matter who the Senate is. It doesn't matter who sits in the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who our president is or is not. Jesus, the priest king reign, is forever. And friend, what good news that is. Jesus is ruling and he is reigning and he is ministering before the Lord on behalf of his people. There ain't nobody like Jesus. Friend, if you are here today and you have not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, do so today. You do not know what tomorrow holds. Know him and serve the only king worthy of our allegiance because he laid down his life for his people. Believer, May you have your faith strengthened in knowing that Jesus rules and he ministers forever. And let's lift high the name of Jesus here in Oakhurst and declare the gospel of the priest king who rules forever to the ends of the earth. That's what we sought to do this week at VBS. Declare the good news of the risen priest king. And may that be what we do until our last dying breath. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Lord God, your word is food for famished ones. It brings joy and it brings hope in the midst of sorrows, in the midst of difficulties. And it points us to the light of Christ that we have in this dark world. And it points us to the life that can be found in Jesus alone. We thank you that Jesus is our king. And therefore we know that whatever happens in this life, it is meant to bring us closer to you. And We thank you that Jesus is our priest, meaning that, that he has brought us into your presence. And the very fact that you're even listening to me pray today is because Christ is alive. Father, I pray that we would make much of Jesus. May we treasure him and value him above anything this world has to offer. That we would be your faithful witnesses here in Oakhurst, the surrounding communities, and Lord, to the ends of the earth as we seek to make disciples and declare the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We thank you. And we praise you that you did not leave us in, your sin, in our sin, but you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.